My name is Tasneem Chopra. I'm a diversity, equity and inclusion consultant and thrilled to be in conversation again with two incredible trailblazing women, um, Molina Astana and Mona Shindi. I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land where all myself and my guests are meeting from today. Um, I'm speaking to you from the lands of the Kulin Nation and uh, paying respects to elders past, present and emerging, noting that the lands here have, have always have been and always will be Aboriginal land. On the 8th of March this year, 2022, Ipert Victoria held its annual International Women's Day Gala. This year, we were very excited to witness what was a pivot away from traditional formats with the first ever All Women of Colour panel, discussing and exploring the themes of Break the Bias, which was the theme of International Women's Day for this year. It was an engaging discussion. The panellists shared personal stories, insights, reflections, um, and their journey on their leadership career, all of which provided for some very intriguing conversations, both on stage and with questions still coming from the audience till today. So while the, while the panellists were able to address some of those issues, um, of the 700 attendees that were there, which were, you know, for the vast majority, it was the first time they'd experienced a panel of this nature, you can imagine. There was a lot of conversations and a lot of, a lot of questioning and a lot of intrigue about the experiences of the panellists. And not surprisingly, given the quality of the guests, panellists, and the relevance of the theme, there were many questions discussed on how do we do inclusion better? And we only really scratched the surface of what it means to be a woman of colour in the, in, the, in the public purpose or the public service sector and beyond. I'm excited that IFA Victoria has provided us with another platform to continue this conversation and to come back in studio, so to speak, with two of our panellists, um, Melina and Mona, to get back to at least a fraction of the, I think, over 60 questions that emanated from our initial discussion. So it's critical that we keep the conversation going. We ensure that issues of gender equity, cultural diversity and intersectional inclusion are kept front of mind, both from practice in the space, but more importantly, from those with the influence and levers to be able to enact better inclusion and make work and workplace environments more accommodating. So on that note, I wanted to throw to our panellists and uh, introduce, we don't have, well, we don't have Moana we're with us this time, but we do have uh, Mona and Molina. So two out of the three Mo Factor representatives, beginning with Mona Shindi, welcome. <coughs> and we wanted to just give a little brief introduction about who you are and what you do. Okay, well, uh, I'm also delighted to be here and be part of this ongoing discussion about diversity in the workplace. Um, my name is Captain Mona Shindi. I'm a, an electrical engineer by profession. Um, I am now a, a retired naval officer after 32 years of service. Um, I now run my own uh, consultancy. Uh, it is called Mona Shindi consulting and uh, I'm currently writing a book and I speak quite broadly around these issues of leadership, resilience, uh, inclusion and diversity. Um, and I'm, I'm delighted to be here today uh, to talk about some of those leadership experiences I've had, some of the challenges I've also had through my career. Um, but certainly in running organisations and being serving both at sea and ashore, 
in the Royal Australian Navy, I have lots of rich material to share with everyone and I'm delighted to be able to do that today. We're delighted to be able to have you here, Myrna. And over to you, Molina. Thanks, Tasneem, uh, and, uh, and good to see you again, Mona. Um, uh, so my name is Molina Sana. I'm a commercial lawyer. Um, I have worked for top-tier firms with the government, and now I have my own practice. I call myself a, maybe a diversity and inclusion advocate. Um, I do a lot of work in that space. I sit on a number of boards, um, and I have, uh, including in sports, on sports boards as, as well, um, and uh, the conversation we had at, um, at the IPA conference, um, the IWD event was absolutely incredible. And I think it generated a lot of interest in how we can make workplaces more safe and inclusive, uh, especially for women of color. And uh, it's, it's probably a new conversation for a lot of people and that's why it's generated that much interest. And I'm hoping that today we can unpack some of the things that we sort of started discussing on that day as well. So. Very grateful for IPA to, for giving us this opportunity to continue the conversation and looking forward to interacting again. Thanks, Melina. Thank you. And yeah, I think the interacting and the conversations that we're going to enjoy on this panel are going to be pretty dynamic. The questions that have been asked of the, the audience, some of them are very pointed. And I'm going to quote them word for word and just, and just reiterate, these are questions that came from the audience members who were at the International Women's Day function who saw and heard from our panellists and had very specific issues they wanted to table. The first one I'm going to throw to, to you, Molina, is um, speaking candidly as women from culturally diverse backgrounds, what aggressions and or roadblocks have white women caused in your careers um, and how can they be allies? So that's very <laughs> out there. But it was asked and it was a question that was upvoted, which means it was you know, voted as a question to be asked by a lot of members in the audience. So people want to know, yeah, tell us. Definitely, thank you. Uh, and, I, and, I, uh, and I said that at the, at the dinner as well, I call our glass ceiling as double glazed because we do face additional barriers as compared to white women. And some of the barriers are created by white women as well. So I guess one of the main things that I've constantly faced is the blocking my entry onto the seat on the table. Uh, which is understandable sometimes because as they're protecting their own seat, which took them probably a century to get to. So they're definitely protective about it. But there's also this undermining the work that we as women of color do that happens sometimes. Sometimes it's unconscious bias that plays out. And sometimes it's the scrutiny of our work to a much larger extent than, than it is for white women. Um, so, but I do think that... Um, they can be allies if they find commonality. Uh, the fact is that we're all heading in the same direction and that none of us will succeed unless all of us succeed. So sometimes bias comes from fear and we take the chance to understand, if we take the chance to understand someone else's perspective, their background, their culture and where they're coming from, then it just becomes easier to accept them for who they are, someone who has the same motivations, the goals and aspirations as them and, and stop looking at, uh, at them as someone that is completely different. Um, they can be allies by supporting us. I've had many allies that are white women. They're constantly supporting my cause, even if they're not 100% across it, because they believe in what I do. They push us forward for positions. They think they're not only uh, that are not only good for us, but for organizations. They highlight the good work that we do and talk us up. 
for example, if someone is asked to speak at a, at a panel and if they cannot, they could suggest the name of a woman of color. That's very easy to do and a simple kind of a way to be an ally. So there's, there's lots of ways of doing it, supporting supporting women around you. And I think if we all, and, and, and as I said, we, we all have to succeed. Um, we all um, need to support each other to succeed. Yeah. And I'm just wondering if you think that ability to be able to be more inclusive of, of diverse women comes from a premise of being intersectional in your feminism, as opposed to just... What we you know, what, what the industry has coined as white feminism, which is really looking at the empowerment of women, but not necessarily all women. Um, and when that does happen, it, it's often at the expense of those from intersectional backgrounds, be it you know different culture, different religion, I mean a different race, um, age, geography, etc. So, do you find there's a better better appetite for discussing an intersectional feminism? Well, I think there is, there's a lot more appetite than there was before. Um, we do talk about intersectionality now, even why do we also want to leave behind women from LGBTIQ plus backgrounds or those with a disability? And uh, the conversations are now sort of um, heading in that direction. I find it interesting, especially because if you look at the US, the work that's been going on there, the Black Lives Movement, but other, other, other work that has been happening there, race comes first and then it's other, it's gender and other other diverse attributes but in Australia when we start talking about diversity always stops at gender and we feel that just because we've discussed gender or we've implemented policies to have gender equality that's the end of the conversation we're not really looking at the sort of the wider kind of the, the whole population and the and, and and what we look yeah. like we're just not reflective yeah. of our society that we are but we are seeing that that, that change and and I think it will come around um, with those conversations that we're having especially conversations like we're having today as well. Yeah, I think you're right. It's also symptomatic of the Me Too movement where it stopped at gender and didn't explore race at all. Look, um, speaking of leadership and impact of leaders being able to do better, um, Mona, I wanted to throw to you, and in terms of reaping the benefits of multicultural women in leadership, and it, it does mean making space and sometimes letting go of power and extending your table, how should this occur? What's the most effective way for that space to be created so that room can be made for diverse women? I think, I think the thing is, this is not an easy discussion. I think that's the thing to acknowledge straight up because of all those issues that, that I certainly spoke about on the evening when we had the gala dinner, the IPA dinner, um, bias is real, whether it's, um, it, it affects the way we, we think, we view things and we act, you know, the unconscious bias, people don't even know it's happening and it can be done quite innocently and people are unaware. Affinity biases are real too. So I think when we talk, we just had that discussion about gender being, um, you know, that's been embraced after much discussion and much work, but it stops at gender because people can still relate, leaders very much, in a white male dominated area can still relate to women that are very much like their sister or their mother or their daughter. Uh, mm. It's easier. That's, you know, it's, a, it's still, there is an element of affinity, but where the differences are, are much more significant, um, that's a little bit harder. And I think what Melina talked about too there in terms of, you know, the scrutiny, the confirmatory biases also that are uh, placed perhaps on women of colour, it makes it quite uh, difficult. But your question went to leadership and what can leadership do? Mm. Clearly the, the first step in all of this is being aware of the challenges, being aware about how our 
make up our brains work. So through education and awareness that we have a tendency, all of us, and it's not just white men or white women, it's, it's people like me also. We have biases in the way we think about things. So being aware that we have that. So implementing an education program is critical. I think incentives also for leaders. So how do we actually physically make a leader create space? Well, if we give incentives to say that there are some form of rewards um, in terms of, you know, mentoring, supporting, promoting, encouraging, positioning. Um, Can you go harder than incentives? Would you go quotas? Would you go? I, I would. I would. I think, I think uh, Melina also pointed to this very fact. The moment that we, well, as long as we don't have our leadership reflecting, mimic, mimicking or aligning our demographic in the nation, we need to be asking why is that so? Mm. It, you know, there are not specific people who are more capable or more intelligent than others to be able to take on these roles. And, and until we actually shake up and actually have physical change in our leadership ranks, then there will not be the momentum that can then, that, that uh, critical mass is required so that the momentum can be maintained and that those real systemic and systematic uh, barriers and issues can actually be addressed over time. I think the other thing too, besides incentive, I think the greatest incentive for any leader is knowing that they have been an impactful person for their organisation and for those that they lead. Um, and the very best leaders, it is very rewarding for them to be able to give a person a go, you know, and see them thrive and grow and achieve. Uh, it's a bit like giving charity, you know, there's nothing, and I, and I don't mean that in a, uh, it, it's not a charity to give somebody who deserves a go a go, but when you do give something to someone else, um, you also feel good about it yourself. And I think that kind of understanding among leaders is, is really what we need to actually get that momentum going for change. Mm. Beyond what Mona has just said, if, uh, if I had to ask you or if someone posited to you, but, but Melina, I don't see any called women who are aspiring for leadership. I don't see them. Where are they? Um, what, how do you respond to that? Well, there isn't, right? So we've got to work towards it. That's what that's what all of our work's focus is. Um, and, and, and Mona rightly mentioned about, and you asked the question about quotas and targets. I, I totally believe in quotas and targets, and especially targets if quotas are too hard. Um, and we have the equitable briefing policy in the legal system, which has worked, uh, where, you, um, where you select, brief, select, or recommend women barristers. Uh, with relevant seniority and expertise, um, and 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 that's definitely led to an increase in women being um, briefed um, as well. And and I don't um, I don't know if I mentioned it before, but the Rooney Rule is something that originated in the U.S. Um, in rugby, which makes it mandatory that at least one person of a black, Asian, and minority ethnic background should be interviewed for a position, but without making it compulsory to recruit them. So it creates additional opportunities to for diverse candidates to be identified, interviewed, and ultimately hired when a vacancy becomes available. So those organizations or practitioners who don't believe in quotas or targets should at least be implementing such a rule here 
and and I I I honestly also believe that you really need to showcase diversity. You have to highlight the great work that women are doing, but also don't keep showcasing the same people over and over again because that perpetuates the belief that there's only a few of us who are capable. Whereas there's a lot of us that are. We don't want to conform to a particular form of a. women of a, a, a color we are come in all shapes sizes colors and we want to be different and and be able to show you to be able to showcase that as well and, and i think the most important thing is we need to create more spaces for women generally um there needs to be more seats on the table just for women and if how, we, how do how do we or how how does it victoria do do its part in creating more opportunities for called women and women of color to be in the public sector what should they be doing um with the resources that they have to to in, what to widen the pool of applicants and incentive something like this is a good example at least you started the conversation we are talking about what can be done ipa yeah. is not a decision maker of course but they have a lot of members as part of the organizations that can actually implement some of the things that we may be talking about and things that we there are out there in and you do that work just name as well about how um organizations can be more diverse and have that you know the cultural competency and all of that so yeah. i guess starting those conversations about having an intersectional approach talking about cultural systemic and cultural shifts that mona also mentioned unconscious bias training is really important i don't know if you can develop something like that we've got something like that in the uh, the local council of australia provides that kind of training maybe that kind of training may be useful for organizations because i know they want to do it but some of them definitely want to but they probably don't know how where to start so maybe there's there's a place to for that kind of education or information to be to be provided where where people can well, organizations can implement that and then start you know talk about addressing inclusion from a social impact perspective rather than a public relations perspective yeah. um, only then we will get effective strategies so i think if if we start these conversations and we actually talking about social impact then it, it, then real change will happen rather than just okay we're going to just tick some boxes we're going to look at this we're not going to look at the real yeah. skills but we're yeah. just going to you know because we have to do it we'll do it but we understand why we're doing it then then there's more likely to re- for change lasting change to happen no oh well, yeah there you've heard it now Molina is thrown down thrown down the gauntlet to IPAA to commit to a social impact resolution here and resolve let's see if um let's see what can happen and emanate from this look beyond beyond obviously recruiting with more diverse intent mona you know there's something to be said about culturally safe workplaces So once we once we obtain you know women of color in in, in the workforce in the workplace who are, who are motivated to come and see the purpose of coming we want to retain them we want to ensure that their experience is meaningful and respectful and inclusive so i'm asking you how do we work towards being a culturally safe workplace i think i think it's a um a collective um endeavor to be culturally safe um there's a lot that's put on the shoulders of cultural minorities in organizations where they are in fact a minority they're a small number there's a lot expected of them to be able to stand up and be resilient and be able to speak to things that need to be looked at or reformed or that are inappropriate and what have you but what what the organization can do to help in um in in uh keeping people on board when they have come in is to be aware of all those inevitable and i must say they are inevitable 
micro and macro aggressions that uh, individuals encounter on a daily basis. Um, and when they are aware of those things, then to actually put in place, and we've talked a bit about education, but education is just one, one thing. There needs to also be consequences uh, for um, recurring and uh, inappropriate and unacceptable disrespectful behaviour. So I think the thing is too, the thing that leaders can really do in this regard is to actually stand up and speak and not only leave it for those that are in the minority groups to stand up for themselves and to point out inappropriate behaviour, but to also for a leader to call it out when they see it themselves, for a leader to stand up and say, I observed something today that was not appropriate and it quite frankly was disrespectful. And when that kind of thing happens, it's not only left to people from minorities to do it all themselves and to do the heavy lifting because it is exhausting doing that all the time. And not everybody has the strength of character um, and the, uh, the tenacity and the will to uh, repeatedly point things out particularly when there isn't the backup support from the leadership to actually effect changes from what they have pointed out. That's how, that's how I would uh, say things can happen. So there's a real need for leaders to step in and speak, not just leave it to minorities to do it all themselves. Can I, can I also add to that and just say, I think it's really important that there's safe and appropriate channels for reporting and for grievance management, because the structures are such that it's very difficult, especially if you think about women of color, a lot of them might be new migrants and they're still struggling to find their space in their own career, even get a job in their own um, you know, area of expertise. And then to come into a, a, a workplace, which is, which is hierarchical or structured in a particular way where their own progression may be hindered just because they speak up is going to be extremely difficult. So you need to break down some of those structures as well where and, and make it safe for, for these women to be able to talk. Maybe there's peer groups that need to be organized where people can talk about these issues amongst themselves. I, th I, I think there should be maybe buddies allocated to people. So at least you have a buddy there at a workplace when you enter that workplace to be able to talk to someone. There's, even if it's informal, sometimes it's not even about grievance. It's about being able to, you know, just express your views or be able to take it out. You know, may not necessarily want to take action, but it finds its support group. So the support groups have a place in a workplace as well, I do believe. Just on this issue of, you know, um safe ways to, uh, you know, raise issues and make complaints. I think, again, it's a real leadership issue because um, the change that, that we're seeking is, is a change that often is met with resistance, fear, um, and a certain potential impact to organisational reputation also. So I think... Mm -hmm. The thing is that when things come out in the open and things are actually expressed and talked about, people are afraid about how that will be interpreted sometimes too. And there can actually be a hush-hush um, approach to things rather than dealing with it firmly and uh, forthrightly and, and actually acknowledging that there are deficiencies that need to be addressed and that we will address them and do something about it. Sometimes it's easier just to, to try and um, uh, just hope that it goes away or, a, you know, some kind of um, 
you know, perhaps a, a, a not, not a powerful enough response to what needs to actually happen for change to occur. Yes, so I'm, I'm hearing what you're saying and I'm also correlating that with findings from the Diversity Council of Australia's Racism at Workplace in the Workplace Report that came out last week. And amongst many recommendations that it made is that when complaints or grievances are expressed in the workplace, how important it is to often have them heard by an independent by an independent body, not necessarily HR either, because historically we've found that HR's obligations are often to the company before the individual. And that's it needs to be called out. I think that's a very important position to be able to take without you know, without being pummeled for saying that. And I think because that's the case, the recommendations again from DCA are to retain experts in race to oversee and arbitrate grievances of race that are race-based, which again, sounds very logical, but is, is, is the exception to the rule. It's not actually happening enough in the workplace so that when grievances are made of women of, by women of colour about experiences of marginalisation, there's not often a safe environment in which to have them heard. So, yeah, a buddy would be great, but so would would so wouldn't um, so would be a independent uh, assessor who was an expert in race issues and arbitrating racism experiences. So I think that's that's a new place again, a new area and terrain for organisations to look at when we talk. And about I think organ- if you, the more people of color say or women of color you have in leadership the more it will trickle down because eventually you will implement policies because you are at the level where you can actually you are in a decision making uh, position you will be implementing policies within an organization that will support greater diversity and it happens it's our lived experience we are we live and breathe it and 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 I don't think anyone else is in a better position to make those decisions than us. And, and once we are there in number, then obviously things are going to change. But if we, I'll give you an example. On one of the boards that I'm on, um, I, we were looking for an ex, uh, external person. And I was given um, a, a, a brief by uh, the CEO and, the, um, and our company secretary saying, these are the three, four candidates. Um, let's interview two of these. And they gave them names of two. They were all men, unfortunately, but there was one person of color whose who's, um, uh, CV was there as well. And it looked amazing. And I asked, why are we not interviewing that person? And they said, because um, it looks like that person's got a very busy, they've got too many, uh, uh, already got too many uh, uh, roles and they'll probably be too busy. I said, but that's the same for the others, uh, other series as well. And um, that was that unconscious bias that, that bias that kicked in when they were providing me with the series. And I said, I, I'm happy to give an, another uh, one hour of my time to interview a third person. But I do, if you do have a person of color who has applied, I want to interview them. And we interviewed that person. We interviewed all of them. By far, the person of color was the better candidate. Um, they were excellent in their responses. They understood the business. They understood what we were talking about. And then unanimously, the the panel came to the interview panel. Interview panel came to the view that this person is 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 uh, is the right person for for that role. And it wouldn't have happened if I hadn't made a conscious decision to interview someone of color. And 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 and, and I'm not taking side, I'm not doing it because the person is just a person of color because they also had amazing qualifications and experience yeah. that I thought yeah. would be useful. And I chair yeah. that committee. I wanted someone who is, you know, an expert. Yeah. yeah well, yeah, again, you, you, you were seeing 
through other biases that people were bringing to the table and having to call them out by being more stern in your decision. And clearly the outcome was beneficial. Mona, what about you yourself? I mean, have you had to be courageous and challenging, often maybe even psychologically unsafe, um, disrespectful practices where where people have not been inclusive? And in those situations, how have you navigated them? Well, I have I have challenged many, many, and yes, there have been many. In fact, there have been. Where do you start? Is well, you are writing a book, so I'm guessing there's. Quite I am. Out. I am writing a book, and then the book is out mid year, and it's called Shattering Identity Bias. By the uh-huh. way, well, there's the plug for it. But um, the thing is, my whole life and my whole career has been one. Um, episode after the next I could say so there's a lot of rich rich material to uh to talk about but look you know I want to I want to start off by putting in the 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 reality to the caveat is that my life has not all been miserable and bad and 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 there have been lots of wonderful experiences through my life but that said um yeah how I handle these things is I am usually my approach is quite forthright, quite open. I like to initially, if something offends me or hurts me or I think is completely uh, out of line, I will raise that with the individual very respectfully myself back to them and and highlight to them the impact that their comments or their behaviour has had on me. Can you give us an example of when that's happened? Oh, it's happened... uh, Lots of times where someone might just sort of, you know, there, there's been scenarios where um, people have, uh, for example, um, I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to pick one for you because there are so many, but um, it might be something like where I've had a very, after I wore the hijab, let's just say at work, um, there were people that when I first walked back into my work environment, people that I'd gotten on well with, I, I was the director of that particular organisation, been there for three years, went to the Hajj or the, the pilgrimage, the Muslim pilgrimage, came back, had the hijab on. There were people that could not make eye contact at all after that and it was quite difficult and there was some strong, well, not strong, but very heartfelt conversations that I had with, with certain people. There was uh, one particular senior officer on one occasion uh, when they first saw me um, to my face, straight to my face, told me that I looked absolutely confronting. Um, those kinds of things are hurtful. They they really hurt. And um, in those scenarios, I would say, well, you know, um, I found that hurt me. And I would say so and I'd bring it up. Sometimes they were not aware. They thought it was just acceptable to say something like that. Um, there was another scenario that I had where, again, another very, very senior people, these are the people that are in the leadership positions, by the way, let me say, uh, passed me in a corridor and, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure he was even aware of it, that, but, you know, he, under his breath, said, oh, oh, my God, as I passed when I walked by. Now, those kinds of things are, are very alienating. There are times after I wore the hijab also where, you know, we needed to line up in a formation, in a military formation, in a squad, and people you could see actively trying to jostle so that they wouldn't be standing next to me in in that particular scenario. So, like I said, there have been lots of times and uh, where I have, and, and early on in my career also, just as a woman without the hijab, 
where that exclusion has been very much felt and has been approached in a way where it's the initial conversation, heartfelt conversation. Then it may be talking to somebody else who is able to raise the issue with them if they don't change behaviour. And then finally, it's the issues of formal complaint. Uh, after that, whether things are persistent uh, and uh, continual, uh, despite, you know, in a very respectful way, trying to raise and explain issues. But again, as I said, uh, Tasneem, the, mm. even being able to have those discussions it is ex extremely draining. And once you've felt very marginalised um, and um, excluded from um, a cohort or a peer group, uh, it's, it's very hard for the individual to continually, on a constant basis, tackle that themselves all the time. So, um, but that's how I do it and how I have done it in my life. Uh, and it has been an escalated process of conversation through to complaint. Wow. Thank you for sharing that, Mona. There's, there's a lot in there to unpack and there's probably another podcast worth of conversation to do that. Uh, well, well, that's a good plug for the book as well. Um, I mean, Molina, on the back of that, I want to ask you something similar, which again is a question from the floor from the day. Leading very much from this comment that Mona has, has just made, how do you personally navigate being authentic and accountable to your community while meeting the requirements of your job. So do people often challenge your identity and think, well, you know, you're, you're too Asian or too South Asian or you're too Indian to be in this field, so you really possibly don't know what we're talking about. Um, and then maybe from within the community, oh, you know, by, by towing this particular professional line, you're, you're, uh, you're betraying your community you're not you're not actually representing us enough or you're not you do, you know you're, you're either too much or you're too little how do you find the balance yeah and and it's it's interesting because your barriers come from both within your community and from outside it's not that it's easy to navigate them uh internally i think within our own communities yes i've been doing a lot of work in the dowry um for the dowry issue which is uh um is, is quite a big issue for the south asian community but also other communities as well and and we were um through one of the organizations that i'm on the board of we were able to get uh, dowry introduced as a form of economic abuse in the family violence legislation and We've faced backlash for that left, right, and center from a lot of men, uh, and and they make. What was the precise remarks. backlash? Was it about What was the precise nature? Yeah, of the so backlash? the the backlash was that we are maligning the community. Um, and that by airing the dirty linen in public or whatever. But the fact is, if you've got an issue in the community, some of them deny it. Some of them deny that there is an issue. So so it's it's to deny it or you say that you shouldn't be talking about it. I don't think that's the right way of approaching an issue at all. I mean, this is something that we're doing for the betterment of the whole society community. We can't give that up just because um, we feel that it's somehow going to, you know, have some impact, negative impact on our community, but it's already happening. So we let the women suffer just for outward perception. I, I don't believe in that, but but that's the sort of backlash you sometimes face from your own community. But they also, it's interesting because we talk about the double glazed glass ceiling for women of color. It's the men from your own community that pull you down as well constantly. So you will see that if you're in a position of power or you're getting, if you are in, uh, you know, rising up in your career, there's yeah. men from yeah. the same community who will want to pull you down. They will not do that to another male. There's boys clubs that exist within similar cultures as well. So 
they mm-hmm. say so it's it's it's, it's, it's a, sometimes i find that men would come up and say we have the same issue as you do as male men of multicultural backgrounds mm-hmm. but i but i say to them no you don't i'll show you bring the biases from uh, this um the biases that have existed or the patriarchal societies that you oh, come so from that following you around it's a bit of a patriarchies Yes, exactly. So yeah. that patriarchy also has a role to play in how women of color are marginalized in their own communities, and then externally as well. So, so I think it, we obviously face what we face externally, and we've been talking about that for uh, at the at the dinner as well as today. But the internal, sometimes that the what backlash you face from your own community mm-hmm. is much worse because you do want to belong. to your community at least and you know that's the place you belong you may not belong as a migrant and you when i came to this country that i'll be treated differently so i had to fight that i had to sort of uh, steal myself for that but i don't wasn't stealing myself to be treated like that by my own community and i've had men sort of write things about me on facebook challenging why i'm even recognized in my own profession i'm the president elect the blue institute of victoria it's a big thing but but it's still being challenged by people and and the fact that i do work in sport questioning why i'm doing this work so it's 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 quite uh, um, disturbing and and it yeah. does pull you down but uh, i guess <laughs> this is no, something no, that we've got to face as well the success of what you're doing is 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 a credit to the community and i think people's inability to see that is more a reflection of of their inadequacies than your incompetence so at that that's clearly what what i see when i hear those kind of comments being made so look on that i'm going to pivot for the last 30 seconds each to you which is again an extension of this question and someone did ask you know we've been talking so much about you know women women of color and the impact they're making how do we bring and i quote how do we bring the blokes with us so i presume this is the blokes who are potentially on side not off side mona how do we bring the blokes on to the kind of work that we're trying to do here to be more inclusive of women of color in workplaces the blokes well there's lots of blokes in the in the fields that I'm certainly involved in both the technical fields leadership fields military fields um i think hard sell thing, sorry is it a hard sell to these blokes look i think i think there are there are certain blokes that have already started the journey with women like us mm-hmm. um I think uh those blokes have educated themselves. I think they actually understand the value of diversity and what it brings. They look at it uh, I think as Melina said uh in terms of the social impact that it may that it is that is required to occur, but also from a defense perspective or a military perspective or any organizational perspective, diversity is a capability enhancer. what it does is it strengthens an organization it allows organizations to understand and see opportunities and understand risks it gives a a different perspective of view and being able to um understand the value that diversity brings to organizations is what is a very powerful thing to start looking at breaking those biases because something that benefits everyone and it it does benefit everyone diversity it enriches an organization and its capability that's the basis on which to convince and to bring people on board but i think also the blokes in spending time with them engaging with them and authentically speaking to them from the heart i think often this stuff is needs to happen from the heart 
they can actually um, get to know a little bit more about the real challenges that uh, people of colour and women of colour in particular have. And from that position, understanding an ability to share the power and share the leadership with uh, diverse people will actually uh, enrich everyone, including themselves. And quite frankly, it's a great, greatly rewarding thing to be able to do to help others achieve their full potential. Here, here. Hopefully they can more and more can see that. Molina, did you want to add a last comment? To that? Yeah, I, I, I want to um, talk about it from a different perspective. I want to, I want to start with um, our homes, our houses, uh, where we grew up. I've been surrounded by men who have supported me. So my grandfather, I spoke about it at the dinner as well. My grandfather was my biggest inspiration, a feminist judge who wrote in, in the narrative of he, she, in his judgments as well. So, so I've grown up with that. My husband is very supportive of what I do. So I'm, I'm surrounded by blokes who supported me. So I think there's definitely, if, if you start at home, and then I always tell women to teach their sons as well. I don't have a son, but if teach your sons um, to respect women and, and share responsibilities. I think that's where we start with, but that's when we, if we start there, then we'll see less problems as we, even in a workplace, if we talk about a workplace setting. So I think that's where I, I want to start with a, making change at home. But then, I mean, there's externally, I've found it easier sometimes to work with men because they're less threatened by us uh, because they already have that, you know, they already have that seat on the table. They, are, they have enough of them. They don't need, um, they, they, I usually find that they're not threatened and, and it, it, it's sometimes easier to rationalize with them, less of a power struggle, in that scenario of becoming to us with that, with a little bit less of a kind of a, a bias in that sense or less feeling less threatened, you're more likely to get ahead with yeah. the conversations you want to have with them. So, so I find it easier sometimes to convince them of my viewpoint because I am, um, and and they're open to it, but not not always. I mean, I've seen, you know, you've, you you've also seen groups like um, Champions of Change, where there's male Champions of Change. I think that's there. That has a place, but I, however. I, tend to give men a bit more power and it's kind of condescending that the men have to make that place for us and uh, mm. and if they don't then we won't get anywhere that they have to be our champions why do they need to be our saviors I mean it's fine ally is different from you know being a savior and I'm sort of more in that ally allyship mm. which we discussed at the dinner as well that's where we want people to be to be supportive and not not be someone who's gonna you know necessarily be the ones who who's seen us as, as as pushing us up and 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 the ones that are behind our success because I think we can we can do it ourselves brilliantly said oh there's thank you thank you both so much and that's a brilliant note to end on I think you've reaffirmed that you know as women of color we don't need to be saved we just need a platform we just need the space and the microphone thank you um because we're more than capable of handling ourselves so uh, Captain Monashindi, Molina Astana, thank you so much for your time. We did only get through a fraction of the questions that were asked, but I think it's, it's a credit to you both that you were able to delve into these with great detail and, um, and heart in, in your responses. So I look forward to hopefully hearing some feedback about these conversations and, and, and your responses in time from the viewers of this podcast or the listeners of this podcast. And thank IPA Victoria for giving us giving us this platform that we clearly needed. Thank you very much.